One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Square Ball Podcast. Welcome to the Square Ball Podcast, episode 178. With Levi Solicitors, 10% of your legal fees when you mention the Square Ball, 20% off right now for key workers. Head to levisolicitors.co.uk forward slash the Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. With me is Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White. Daniel Chapman. Hello. As lockdown continues, please do grab the free colouring book from our online shop and keep an eye out for details of our final issue of the season, issue eight, on the way in a bit. We've got plenty of mugs and merchandise on sale there via the website as well, with new t-shirts coming soon at thesquareball.net. Well, boys, it's terrible that we have to do this, but uh, as we all know, a few days ago, we lost one of our heroes in the form of Norman Hunter, who died aged 76 due to uh, COVID-19. Lovely to see that organic response from Leeds fans to drape the scarves from the windows and doors in response. I really liked that. It was just a really nice, understated coming together. But um, how are we with this then? Have Have we processed it? And how do we feel about Norman? I think it feels like a, a tragedy in two ways, really. First, obviously, that it has happened. But then, as you said, with the, the scarf thing, because we can't do anything proper to market, the fact that we're all just sat in our houses wanting to do something when we should be going to Ellen Road and marking his life in some way. But instead, we're just... It's been, it's been, it's been quite nice, in a way, walking around and seeing all the scarves hanging out the window. It's, it's been nice to see the responses there for it still. But it's a, it's a strange thing, is, is grieving by yourself in these situations. Yeah, it's, it was quite a nice touch of... Um... Barnsley to point out that that was the the game that was due on Saturday and obviously he was a manager there and they were fond of him as it seemed like absolutely everybody who had any kind of tiny interaction with him. I was weirdly struck by, on the BBC's list of tributes, there was one from Casey Stoner, who's the she's scum women's manager now, but we gloss over that. And she just talked about sitting next to him at a, a PFA Awards a couple of years ago and said, uh, he's one of the nicest, warmest and friendliest men I've ever met. He shared stories that were amazing to hear and was so kind to me. And I was just a stranger. And I think um, pretty much everybody who came across him over, well, it seems like his, in, his entire life and career probably would say exactly the same thing. And I think it's a mark of how well thought of he actually was when you strip away all the dirty lead stuff and actually look at the man and the footballer that one of my neighbours, who is a Geordie, a couple of doors down, he's draped his Newcastle scarf out the window as a mark of respect. Because for anybody who's not familiar, Norman Hunter was born at Aiton Banks, which is at the very southern end of Gateshead, just as it kind of hits the open countryside and the hills sort of sweep down towards Durham. And if you've ever driven on the A1 past the Angel of the North, then Aiton Banks is the bit that's kind of just behind that to the northeast up the hill. But um, as a lad who's considered a Geordie, he's very much one of our own because he made his debut at 18 against Swansea Town and then went on to make these 726 appearances for Leeds over such a long time. When you look back at all of the players from this era, the appearance numbers are almost impossible. I find it impossible to get my head around that anyone could ever play that many games. I think there's basically all of that that team will never be beaten in terms of the appearances for us. And yeah, he's a he's a synonymous with with leads of that era. And you, it's it's another one of of that lot that we we no longer have with us, unfortunately. Yeah, they played a ridiculous number of games. That's possibly one of the the things the Revy team would have been wiser not to. They had a a much better time of it when uh, 73-74 when they were they were going to win the league and Revy had said um, he wanted to win it unbeaten but then basically made it very clear to the players that he wanted to win every single league game because they were going to go attacking away they they never had tactically before yeah when the uh, the UEFA Cup came around that season they basically treated it as a golfing holiday and it was the first time Leeds under Revy had ever really done that where they'd just gone oh we, we need to 
to get out of this this competition as, as soon as we can because we've got more important things to do. But yeah, the the appearance numbers. I mean, Gary Kelly came close, and Luciano Becchio got onto the the top ten of league goal scorers. But that was always an important distinction because Alan Clark, Peter Lorimer. They had the advantages of all the European competitions that they played in. And I don't think that Johnston's paint ever really gave Becchio the opportunity to kind of make up the numbers on that. I was on Radio Leeds um, on Friday when we learned that Norman Hunter had died. And there's an analogy I made, which I think might be one I've made before, which was about, it's a book called The Right Stuff, which was by an author called Tom Wolfe. And he wrote about the astronauts in the American space race and how they were considered kind of this breed apart, this exceptional uh, band of humans who just kind of went above and beyond what so many others did. And that's how I kind of view the the Reavy team. I mean, I've met a few in my past life on the radio, I met a few famous people, interviewed them and stuff, never get starstruck with them, but I've always felt starstruck around the Reavy players for whatever reason. I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just the magnitude of their achievements and how brilliant they were, I don't know. I think what's probably remarkable about that is that you wouldn't have seen any of them play. Because I know when I was doing the Do You Want to Win film, I had a almost an out-of-body experience interviewing Howard Wilkinson and and being in, in Gordon Strachan's conservatory for, for filming that interview was was extraordinary. But they were players who I'd grown up playing and Howard Wilkinson, I probably saw him on television more than I saw Terry Wogan when I was a, a kid. So he was like, he was the, the, the biggest celebrity. But the the players from the Riviera, um, even in the days when they were playing, they weren't on TV. There was a really interesting reference in uh, Tony Evans' obituary in The Independent where he talks about how in the early 1970s, young boys would tackle each other and they'd shout Hunter because that's all they knew about him. Didn't you, know, you didn't see players play for 90 minutes on television the way you do now. And all they knew about Norman Hunter was that he was a hard tackler. So that's what they would do. He was famous and you'd try and snap somebody's leg and you would be shouting Hunter. And in a way, that's how the um, the myth became more important than the, the quality of the football he was able to play because nobody saw the quality of football. They just they just knew this bites your legs aura about him and that that was the legend that they took into the playgrounds. And that kind of does carry through, I think, myth and legend and aura are probably the, the right words to talk about people who a lot of us, I obviously spent quite a lot of time uh, watching the old games when I was writing the book, but I was struck when um, the Football League put the Southampton 7-0 on the internet over the weekend so everybody can now go and watch the full game of that. How many Leeds fans were, were writing on forums and things saying that they'd, they'd never actually watched it before and so they were, they were looking going, oh, Paul Maley, oh, that's how he plays and like, you know, you can see Johnny Giles is at the, the centre of everything here and and for them to to have this presence that they they always have had for as long as I've been a, a Leeds fan that maybe maybe wasn't the case in the first 10 years after after retirement. I know um, Andy P of the Square Ball is talking about how it took the glory years VHS video for people of his generation who were growing up in the 1980s to realise that these weren't just a bunch of old farts who were cluttering up the coaching staff, banging on about how the game was played in 1962 and and uh, and weren't worth listening to and needed to just get out of the way so that John Sheridan could be uh, the man of the moment. It was when that, that video came out that I suddenly realised that, oh, everything our parents have been saying was right. These people were were incredible. And you, you start to list the achievements, top four every single season, cup finals galore, European finals, England caps, World Cups, medals, trophies, Player of the Year awards. Don Reavy in, when was it, 1974? I think that was his fourth Manager of the Year award. And just when you start to list it and start to really think about it, you you do realise that what, what those guys achieved was absolutely extraordinary. And, and somebody like Strachan or Howard Wilkinson actually said, I've remembered just now when the... Uh, because he obviously took down all the the pictures and things of the the Riviera, and he actually he sacked Norman Hunter because Norman Hunter had been left behind on the coaching staff after Billy Bremner had had been sacked, and he said uh, it was nothing personal. He just wanted everybody from that era gone because Mick Jones used to just come down for a kickabout, and all this used to go on, and he needed a a clean slate. And he said after they'd won the the championship in 1992 he said well we can now we can pay 
for a museum to be built with all their achievements can be recognized again because we've kind of we've we've got over the complex um and this chip on our shoulder and this pressure everybody had about relying on the old days and using it as a crutch and he said that somewhere in that museum there'll be a little corner that will say this team that Harold Wilkinson has put together with Gordon Strachan as the captain they won they got promoted and won the league and he said that's all we've done compared to them we get a corner and their achievements are enormous I mean for me I will agree with that it was the glory years that introduced me to the Reavy team because I grew up in the 80s and uh, the stories that my dad was passing on to me about the Reavy team just being the greatest ever, possibly one of the best in the world. And when that came out, it was 1988, uh, narrated by John Motts and BBC uh, VHS. I sat down and watched it and it made a lot more sense to me. The whole thing, it's just to give it that little bit of context. And it's only then when you realise, and I refer as well to the video that the club posted on the official site on the day that Norman passed, of just how good he was as well with his left foot. Such a tidy footballer. I think this is part of what Moscow was talking about, the fact there isn't an awful lot of footage of the games. Players did get pigeonholed into the one thing they did. So Eddie Gray dribbled with it, Giles passed it, Clark scored goals, Norman Hunter kicked people. And it's it's very reductive to just put them down to those, those players because they were very well-rounded players. They were the best players in the world, to be perfectly honest, for this for this period. Like, as you said, the consistency with which they played um, across domestic competitions and European, they were, they were the best players in the world, but we don't see that. Whereas now you can say to someone, Kiko Kassir was rubbish for Leeds. You can hear all 40 of his games. You can see in detail in the various ways how he was bad. Whereas with the likes of Hunter and Bremner, you kind of you're left with half a dozen games that you can watch in full. Yeah, one of the other comparisons was Paul Wilson in the Guardian said if uh, Norman Hunter had not been able to play good football, he wouldn't have been anywhere near a World Cup final at the age of 22. And for context on that, Ben White is 22. So people talk about Ben White kind of being a an inheritor of um, of Norman Hunter in his his style of play. And there's probably some truth in that in the, the football side, but I think to understand how much better Norman Hunter is or was. Yeah, World Cup squad member age 22 and not, not just going to a, a World Cup, getting to the final and winning the damn thing. So there was only one player who was an absolute legend of, of the game in Bobby Moore that, that stopped him from, from being the person who was alongside Jack Charlton in the game in the final. And, it's interesting, I think, to think about reputation versus uh, and how it's built in those eras because it's not necessarily gone away. Like nobody talks about Tony Yeboah's all-round game. They talk about Liverpool and and Wimbledon. So we've always done it. We always will. But the um, the wider view of him from fans who they maybe only saw him when Leeds came to their their ground once a season, or they saw the odd game on TV was the. Um, the England game in in 1973 when he he did finally dislodge Bobby Moore got into got a game in the back end of the 74 World Cup qualifiers and made a terrible mistake that let Poland score and uh, and meant England didn't go to the World Cup in 1974. Alf Ramsey was sacked and um, Hunter was regarded as essentially a, a failure at international level and all it took in those days was you had to just make that one high profile mistake and that would be all anybody ever saw and there was a there was a lovely bit in John Giles's interview about him on off the ball which I think said a lot about how um both how the Leeds the Riviera Leeds players stuck together and also how they played because he was talking about that moment and how it was unfair and how it, it, it was one of Norman Hunter's biggest regrets in football not that he was the one who made the mistake and had to focus on him but that he then caused Alf Ramsey to lose his job and that England didn't have the, the chance to go to the World Cup. And But Johnny Giles' point was, look, he made this mistake on the halfway line. The ball just, if anyone has not seen it, the ball kind of rolls under his foot. It's just a miscontrol and, and the Poland players are, are off. And he says, Shilton should have saved it. Everybody looks at Norman Hunter's mistake. Shilton should have saved it. So he's immediately John Giles is saying, you know, don't you have a go at my Norman? When Peter Shilton, an England goalkeeper, he should have been saving that. And then he said the other thing as well. He said, Norman made that mistake on the halfway line. There was a lot still had to happen before that that ball's in the net. Where was everybody else bailing him out? And that was the other aspect of, of Reeves' leads. If Norman Hunter had made that mistake on the halfway line for Leeds, which would happen, players make mistakes, 
somebody would have been over there to sort it out. Jack Charlton would have been over. Paul Reaney runs back and, and solves it. Johnny Giles or Billy Bremner are getting back to, to stop anything from happening. If they can't do it, then David Harvey or Gary Sprake before him, they were saving it. Where were, where were the England players to bail him out? And I think it was those two things of, one, that all these years later, Johnny Giles is still, it's not Norman's fault. Look at what Peter Shilton was doing. And then the other thing of like, if that had been a mistake in a, a Leeds game, where are the England players? Why aren't they they sorting out their uh, their teammate? I think those those two things really explain some of the um, the edge that Leeds had over other teams. We got a good message in from Sean actually, who said one thing that gets to me in all the coverage about Norman in that he's always put together with Tommy Smith and Ron Harris. You know the hard man, the bite your legs angle on things. He said, but they were crap compared to him. Norman was a proper player. They got one England cap between them. Norman was my dad's favourite player and he always made me think of my dad whenever I saw or heard him. Such a huge, sad loss. And I think there's so much truth in that as well that because Norman Hunter then went on to work for BBC Radio Leeds doing the co-commentary, that brought him to the attention and the familiarity and in the, in the sphere of a different generation of fans. So he's transcended the generations in that way and like in the way that so many of the review players have. I think that's possibly why the loss of him has hit home a bit more, certainly with, with my generation, well, our generation, people who didn't, see him play didn't really remember him being a manager at Barnsley or anything like I he's the radio Leeds co-commentator is to my mind is that he's the that's kind of my first introduction to him and I suppose he was the voice him and Bryn Law were the voice of of watching Leeds United and since then I guess maybe Eddie Gray is the only other person I've heard talk quite so much about Leeds United Peter Lorimer to an extent but that's tended to be in an official capacity and not in a particularly warm just talking about the football way I think the people like people like Hunter and Gray, they're kind of out they've been our window into that era for, for a very long time. Yeah, I said it the same on the uh when we had Bryn Law and the Dexter Bourne, I think I referred to sort of the voice of Norman Hunter as the, one of my second dads, like my football dads, because my dad didn't like football and wasn't interested in it. So it was people like Norman Hunter and Howard Wilkinson and um and alongside them is the I suppose Bryn Law and before him, Ian Dennis, who worked with him as well and, and was on Radio Leeds for the, the championship season. When I was listening to these over the wrong side of the Pennines, like getting a real fuzzy reception on a, a broken ghetto blaster that my, my sister had um, set fire to. And that's how come she got a new one and I got that one. But that's that's we'll let that go. They were the excitable, they were the, the commentators. And then it was Norman Hunter who came in and kind of explained what was going on and uh, some of the, again, to, to quote some of the, the obituaries, um, Bryn Law had the the reference to Norman's advice, which is on the level with uh, with Michael's coaching, where he said, um, if you see that round white thing, you've got to get it in that big netty thing. And he describes, Bryn says he was very serious about football, but he knew that it was just a bit of fun. And that's that was for me the, the difference between him and somebody like Chopper Harris, who, for example, it always bothers me. And I'm glad if there's one thing in that 100 years of Leeds United book, I am pleased to have put in black and white print. Ron Harris has been dining out for years on the idea that in the replay in 1970, after Eddie Gray had run rings around David Webb, Chelsea's fullback, in the replay says, we swapped. I was marking him. I did him in the first five minutes. He was out the game. Watch the replay back and you look for this tackle in the first five minutes. Not there. And you look for the tackle in the, the first half an hour. He has a couple of nibbles. It's not there. Five minutes before half time, Ron Harris finally gets close enough to Eddie Gray. And it's an awful tackle. He does him on the, the back of the knee. There's nothing to it apart from just, I'm going to try and hurt him and get him out of this game. But it's not the first five minutes that he's been bragging about and dining out on his whole, uh, his whole um, after playing career. It was, it took him to half time to do it. And even then, Eddie Gray had the intelligence in the second half to say, okay, I can't run the way I want to. He drifts inside. And then because Terry Cooper started as a left winger and was one of the best attacking fullbacks that football had ever seen, he played left wing. And Eddie Gray, and we just played without a left back and Eddie Gray just kept feeding in the ball. But he was going across, taking Harris out of the way and giving Terry Cooper the way the, the room to play. And the, the difference in Ron Harris being proud of that, that I hacked down that skillful player, and then you look at any time Norman Hunter commits a foul or gets booked, he looks embarrassed. He looks ashamed of himself. He goes to referees. He's kind of like, I know that was the wrong thing to do. I shouldn't have done that. His his way of playing 
for this defensive hardstyle was he had to try and win the ball. And whatever he had to do to win the ball, he would do it. And that meant being hard and it meant hurting people and it meant being strong in the tackle. But it wasn't about kicking somebody on the back of their knee so that they couldn't play the rest of the match. Because that's not the game. That's that's not part of football. That's violence. That's, you know, breaking somebody's leg so that they can't play the game. Norman's game was getting the ball off you so that Leeds would have the ball and Leeds would play the, the football and Leeds would play the game. And that sort of difference where the the Franny Lee punch-up as well, I've written about that in the, the Evening Post that, that's out today because what they never show on that is what starts it, which is that five minutes before half-time, Franny Lee dives for a penalty and Norman Hunter instantly puts his hands up and says, I didn't touch him. And they can't believe a penalty has been given. And he's on at the referee saying, I didn't touch him. And then as they go down the tunnel, Norman and Billy Bremner are both at the referee. That was a dive. You've been done. Five minutes into the second half, there's a break in play. One of the Derby players needs treatment. He's going to the referee. He's pointing at it saying, look, he dived five minutes before half time because he cannot believe that this cheating has been allowed to happen. And then he goes in for a, a hard tackle with, with Lee to get some revenge. And he sees Lee squaring up and then the fight happens. And he's always said since that it, it's one of the most shameful things he's he's ever done. Never proud of it. Never liked being reminded of it. Interesting, at the time, Franny Lee was actually seen as the villain. He was the one who dived. And Jimmy Hill, in what Franny Lee objected to, were his magic cameras on Match of the Day, showed everybody, this is a dive and that's cheating and you shouldn't do that. And everybody kind of then understood why uh, Norman Hunter had, had ended up busting his lip open. But then they both got sent off and it was seen as, right, well, Norman's got his just desserts for, for punching him. Um, he can be ashamed of that. He'll he'll be banned and that's fine. But then because uh, Franny Lee had uh, carried it on, it was Lee who ended up with the charge of bringing the game into disrepute being proven and Norman Hunter was cleared. But Hunter was still, after all of that, felt like he was the one who, who'd done something wrong, that, that he'd, he'd not been tackling to win a ball. He'd just punched somebody. And that was never never what he was setting out to do on a, a football field. He had a job of getting the ball. He didn't have a job of punching somebody. But then Franny Lee had a job of putting a ball in the net. He hadn't didn't have a job of diving to win penalties. So it's this weird kind of code of honour behind it all that I don't think players like Ron Harris, and then when you read some of the stories about Tommy Smith behind the scenes at Liverpool, he's, he's, he's not the, the pleasant character that, that Norman Hunter certainly was. And yeah, it, it definitely does him no favours to be in, in their company. He was very much more than what they were. And the, the international caps is a great way of measuring it. I guess the question now is, how do we go about remembering Norman Hunter, both as an individual? But I think there's possibly a wider question about the Reavy team in that there's a bit, there's been a suggestion that we should maybe rename the South Stand in Norman Hunter's honour. But then I'm also thinking, what about all that side? Because there's so many players with hundreds of appearances and it feels like we've not properly commemorated them. We've got Don's statue, we've got Billy's statue outside Ellen Road, but what else can we do? I sometimes feel like the Reavy stand is it. It's Don's stand, but then Don Reavy also has the statue that the fans paid for and and fundraised to build because they at the time the, the club weren't going to do it. So I think the poignancy and the, the personal tribute of that, because part of that fundraising campaign was players like Norman Hunter and Eddie Gray and, and lots of other legends from South. I think Alan Clark was very, very involved in it, came together to help uh, raise the money to build a statue to the boss. The Reavy stand was so named when the cop was seated in the, the mid-90s and Elsie Reavy, his wife, uh, opened it. And then... When you look around in the, the the bars, it's a long time since I've been in the the North Stand actually, so I hope it's still the case. Yes, there's there's big pictures of of Don Reavy, but there's also there's lists of all the achievements of that team, and there's photos of of all the players for it. And when we we talk about the players that we're talking about commemorating, we definitely could name the South Stand after Norman Hunter, but then we could also have named it after Paul Maley six months ago. And one of the, the poignant moments of um, John Giles's interview on uh, on Off the Ball was towards the end when he was talking about the coronavirus and says that, you know, he's he's worried at the moment. He's, 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 um, he's having to stay in quarantine at the moment. He's keeping his head down um, and hoping he doesn't get it because there, there's a lot of players from that team who who uh, 
I mean, if John Giles can face it, we can face it. They're of an age, and and this is a particularly difficult time for for them to get through. And time catches up with everybody eventually. So we'll run out of stands because they were all brilliant. But what brings them all together, and when we we talk about players from that era, it is the Reavy era. And I, I do think the fact that we have a Reavy stand, maybe it needs rededicating, maybe it needs clarifying you know you have another ceremony to say that this this stand is no longer just for for Don Reeve the person but it also represents his team his players his staff everybody everybody who was given the freedom of the city of of Leeds recently as well i mean we shouldn't forget that um Norman Hunter was able to enjoy and really appreciated when you you read the interviews from him at the time that honor which is the highest civic honor um, Leeds as a city has to have. There's nowhere else you you can sort of formally, officially go after that. A statue in the middle of Leeds would actually be a step down in terms of like the the weird world of, of civic honours. So I think I think there's something there in sort of remembering that the cop or the North Stand, as I referred to it just then, is the Reavy Stand. The West Stand is already the John Charles Stand, and what those those represent that uh, that the Reavy stand is is more than um, more than just a manager. And then I do wonder. I kind of mentioned it then whether something in the city centre is the next step because that's the one place where Leeds United is not really represented, apart from with uh, our friend the Burley Banksy's kind of ad hoc tributes, including there's the one junction box he did for Norman with a six on it, which that kind of thing maybe is the. The way forward is that that formality, which is very difficult to pull off, of who makes a statue, where do you put it, can you get planning permission, will the neighbours be happy with it, will it be, will it be okay here, who's going to pay for it, what's going to happen, whereas just going and whacking paint on a, a junction box and saying there we've done it has a sort of a real response to it and a, and a emotion that can get lost in the the formalities of of naming things and uh, so yeah I think. We've we've got those several layers of, of difficulties with having a, a team absolutely chocked full of legendary names that everybody will want to honour one by one, and everybody will have their their particular favourites and the ones that they think should be put against. Because I mean, does Jack Charlton have one while he's still alive with us? He played for even longer for Leeds United and played even more games, and he he played in the World Cup final. So does he get a slightly bigger statue than Norman Hunter gets? And all this kind of stuff and maybe just sort of looking at it and saying, well, we honoured everybody with the freedom of the city and we have a stand at Elland Road. And maybe, um, I don't know, it sounds kind of wishy-washy, but I did enjoy uh, David Prutton saying that the players who get it, they recognise that it was players like Norman Hunter who mean that players like David Prutton got to play in front of the incredible atmosphere um, of Elland Road. That the, the reason there were... 25,000 people watching David Prutton play when he played for Leeds was not because David Prutton's a brilliant player. It was because Norman Hunter and Johnny Charles and Billy Bremner and Alan Clark and Eddie Gray had all been brilliant players for so long. And their legacy and what they left behind was everything. There's more things than the naming and and statues and, and individuals, but then, yeah. And then the other side, of that is I have sometimes dreamed about um, an avenue of, of statues so you could go all the way down from all the way down both sides of Elland Road, just put statues on plinths either side from Norman Hunter, Billy Bremner, Paul Maley, Jordan Bataka, Luciano Becchio, everybody who will ever want to remember fondly and, and put them out there. I don't know. There's there's so many ways to do it, and it's um but I don't think we should ignore what we've already done. I think the one thing I would take from it is that it reminds us to appreciate these guys while we're still here as well, because it does bring into focus the fact that, you know, they are all of a certain generation now. And this, I guess this applies to Howard Wilkinson as well, because he is, I guess he's, I think he's about the same age as Norman, isn't he? I think he must be in his mid seventies now. You know, these guys who did it for us and put us where we are now with the status we have, try and appreciate them and get as much as we can. Record every word that Eddie Gray says, for God's sake. It needs, it all needs to be on the record. How many of those words are going to be the boy? You know, the boy, the boy. (laughs) We need to know about the city Asians. (laughs) And I think that's um, that's part of it as well, because when we are talking about naming things, I sometimes wonder uh, who that's for after a, a player is gone, because we could name the cell stand after Norman Hunter, but he ain't going to be here to see it. Whereas he was here to receive the, the Freedom of the City of Leeds and he got his World Cup winner's medal in his hand. 
and the things that meant something to to him um those expressions were made and i've i've it kind of goes the other direction from my argument but i've i've been having my fingers crossed that we'll open the new training ground and name it after howard wilkinson while he is alive so that we can bring him down and we can have a ceremony um which we haven't had for anybody from the the 92 era and say thank you howard and this is this is our way of saying thank you for you and you get to enjoy it and you get to have a load of champagne get pissed go home with our best wishes um and that's for him then whereas i sometimes feel like the a posthumous award would be it'd be something lovely for his family certainly but then i wonder if it, if it's more f- we're the ones who think we'll get enjoyment out of out of knowing that that's that's still there Whereas it's uh, yeah something for people when they're they're still alive and uh, and able to enjoy it, I think is is very much is is where I kind of keep my focus. We'll be talking more about Norman Hunter on the Phil Hay Show later on this week. Our partnership podcast with the Athletic it'll be out with you on Friday morning. And have a look at Phil's Twitter feed as well to pick the topic that we shall discuss this week. We always turn over one section of the show to you, and you get to decide one of three topic so phil's twitter feed the place to find that athletic subscribers get that show and all the athletic podcasts ad free via the app and the athletic is where you'll find all phil's writing of course without ads there's no clickbait on there and there are no pop-ups that free trial 50 percent off a subscription by going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash the square ball it feels like we're creeping towards a conclusion or at least some sort of resolution on the 2019-20 season we keep getting these little bits of information dripped out by the EFL. And we've had a little bit more from Rick Parry, who is the, uh, is the chief exec now, isn't he? Sean's uh, successor, who's been suggesting that the season will get concluded one way or another with or without spectators. It's weird how I believe it now. It's not coming from Sean Harvey. Sean Harvey would have been saying this. I'd have been thinking, no, it won't. That's the season not being finished then. Absolutely guaranteed we're not finishing this season. But okay, maybe we are. I do have a, a different problem with... Rick Parry though which is I always getting confused with Rick Parfit um, and it's just like it's a it's a complete Pavlovian response that whenever I hear his name I just think what what's the guy from status quo so, oh no Parry okay so I have a little bit of a problem with his credibility on that basis and there's been suggestions in other quarters that the season might get canned now uh, contrary to what Rick Parry's been saying about you know streaming everything and so on and so forth we could end up with the season canned now and finished on a points per game basis, which would send us up because the championship, everybody has played 37 games handily enough. So it would end as it currently stands. Uh, We're on 1.92 points per game, just for the record. Um, It does throw up some real complexities though in League One and League Two, where it's not quite that straightforward. Like third to fifth in League One, for example, they've all played 35 games and they've all got 60 points. So again, you're having to then say, well, okay, well, what's our next metric? Is it going to be goal difference? Is it going to be number of wins? That sort of thing. Now, if they did scrap the season, but still did the playoffs, then sixth place is going to go to Wickham, who are currently standing eighth. So you can imagine that there's legal challenges there. And it gets even more complex in League Two as well. Like Swindon would pip crew to the championship because they've played one game fewer. And it's so tight around fourth and fifth fractions of points per game in there between Cheltenham and Exeter that you just it's going to create another set of problems if they just choose to can it now I mean what which way do you see this one going I still I think they'll try and play out and I really do want them to I mean the points per game thing in the championship it looks like a fairly safe bet to do it what you do with the playoff place I'm not sure but I actually went back and looked at if you'd done this in the past sort of 10 years and the only season when after 37 games the top two weren't the top two was last season. Yeah, that was coming. <laughs> when we leads it up. But even but that was different. We were we were two points clear of Sheffield United. Every other season, I think in one in, in generally speaking, the team at the top after thirty seven games wins it. I think the only time they didn't was twenty eleven, twelve when uh Reading were two points behind Southampton and ended up winning it. But literally every other season the top two go up. So it's a if you're gonna use a way a meth, a method of doing it, it is fair particularly because it means we go up. <laughs> I think the the problem in the those lower leagues in leagues one and two really highlights where the the pressure on all this is because it's the the, the problem they have is that if they finish the season without fans and it, everybody's leaning now to the it's going to be games behind behind closed doors until for the foreseeable 
all their income because they get their broadcast money at the start of the season. So they, they budget for that and then they budget for gate receipts. And so if they don't get gate receipts, they lose money. So even playing behind closed doors will cost League One and League Two teams money they don't have. So the vast majority of those clubs are like, look, please do not force us to put games on even behind closed doors because we cannot pay those bills and we'll go out of business. But then I think at the top of each of those leagues, you've got clubs saying, yeah, but we get more money if we get promoted, which is what we're in the position to do. So whatever happens, we want to we want to carry on and, and get the promotion that we're worth. And the one vocalised uh, incidence of that in the championship that I've heard is Luton. You know, their budget, they're basically saying like, yeah, we're playing behind closed doors just probably isn't going to work for us, even though they're in the same league as, let's talk about who came down last season. I can't even remember who came down the, the season before, but, you know, we've got the, we're the league with the parachute payments, um, but we're also the league with Luton. So we've got that that kind of crunch in the championship. And I think the only way it could work, if if the intention is across the football league to play to a conclusion, and there's been a um, a UEFA meeting today where they've UEFA have said to all the national associations they're talking about starting games in June and working towards the 29th of August Champions League Cup final. And if they're serious about playing to the end of the season, the only way I can practically see it working is you have to find a way of funding those clubs who can't afford to do it. Say it is the it's the Football League who are driving the idea that you have to put these remaining games on and then the Football League is going to have to find the money to pay the bills for putting those games on because I don't think there's any point in putting Accrington Stanley out of business just so that eight games can be played. Accrington Stanley, were they? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we don't want to be asking that question again, but the, you know, the Berry went out of business under normal circumstances and Bolton have been teetering on the brink. So I think trying to find healthy league clubs in, in a way, it's the, uh, the league has to, to reap a little bit of what it's sown. It's presided over an absolute basket case um, of a financial setup for years while doing absolutely nothing to help solve it. And now when it comes to the crunch, they can hardly look around and go, oh, I've not if you got any money. Oh, shit, sorry. We should have said something. We could have done something to sort that out. Uh, no, this is the point where it has to, uh, there has to be a way of the league ensuring that if it's the league who want games played, then it's the league who have to ensure that that happens without clubs going bust as a direct result. I think the key difference here with compared to other clubs going out of business in previous seasons is that the players are not in a, a strong position either that if you were at Accrington Stanley and you're not being paid, you can't just decide, oh, well, I'll just cancel my contract and go and sign for, I don't know, Carlisle because they also will have no money. So you're going to have an awful lot of unemployed footballers if they, you know, if they choose to go down that route. I think it's in everyone's interests to keep the clubs alive, isn't it? The last thing a professional footballer in England needs is to see that the professional divisions shrunk down to 30 teams or something. One or two financial chickens coming home to roost. Not the only animal that's been causing problems as well this week. Pat Bamford has got moles in his massive garden. This is possibly... Putting sun cream on them. (laughs) This is possibly the most Pat Bamford story imaginable. This is the first time when I've actually started to wonder if Pat Bamford is acting. Like if actually he's, you know, he he didn't have piano lessons and he's not the child of billionaire JCB owners, that it's actually all just a massive prank and uh, and like an... It's been Paul Whitehouse all along. Yeah, it's like just some art projects. But he says, um, Bryn Law asked him if it was easier training in his massive garden. And he says, well, you would have thought so, uh, except it is on a big incline. And we've had a massive breakout of moles. The moles are absolutely doing my head in, but I've been running around on the road anyway, because just because it's so uneven, it's more of a field out the back after you get off the lawn. <laughs> I like the different, it differentiates between the field and the lawn. It's like, obviously the, the, it goes on as far as the eye can see because the land, but, but that's just fields. <laughs> it's the idea of him roaming around his garden with a shotgun, looking for these moles. I'll get you. And obviously <laughs> somebody needs to do the obvious joke of him uh, missing. Yes, well, I bet his gamekeeper is absolutely furious, isn't he? And his gardener as well. It's wonderful. It's hilarious. I, you know, whenever I get mad at him missing a sitter or something, then he does something like this, and I just find it fucking hilarious. He's lovely, really, isn't he? He is, and I just like he's just got a happy grin about him. If he's happy, you, I'm happy. Th- I've just remembered there was another one where he's saying last week he was watching um, 
uh, Sky was showing all the goals of the season. He was like, obviously, I didn't see any of mine on there. <laughs> Patrick, just stop it. <laughs> He's a good lad. On to Massimo Cellino. Now, we've heard more from him. And obviously, in the context of the passing of Norman Hunter, it's not something we want to particularly make light of. But um, yeah, he's he's got coronavirus as well. Him and Eleonora. Um, yeah. He does describe his, uh, his quarantine sounds quite interesting, where he says he was in Cagliari for a few days after three weeks of quarantine in Brescia, then Easter in Sardinia. And they took a private plane and returned to Brescia and then two weeks of quarantine in Cagliari. And then I went to the hospital for checks. It's like, I don't think he's, if he quite worked out that uh, if you've got symptoms, stay the fuck indoors. It's strange that Massimo Cellino would think the rules didn't apply to him. Well, bless him. He's, he has, uh, he's got it and uh, his daughter's got it. He says, my son didn't have it. I don't know if he's disowned one of them or if he's only paid to test one. I don't know if um, Hercule or uh, Eduardo, if one of them are out of favour at the moment. Um, but he says he has excessive tiredness and severe pain in my bones. And then after talking about Pat Bamford, maybe playing the role of Pat Bamford a little bit too much Pat Bamford-like, Massimo um, Cellino then comes out with, it's bad for the liver. <laughs> yes, Massimo. I think Massimo Cellino's entire life has been bad for his liver. But there he is. And he uh, he's um, he's quite righteous on the, the idea that Syria should not be playing. He's been adamant about that from the start. And he, uh, he does make a, a sort of a good point at the end where he says, um, he said, if the churches do not reopen in phase two of reopening the country, how do you restart Syria? I asked the FA and the league presidents to take responsibility. And he, uh, yeah, he's been adamant all the way through that uh, the country, he said the country should be closer to its people and that a 600 euro check for each of them is not going to do much to help them out. I'm embarrassed by the lack of sensitivity shown by this government. I'm seriously thinking about taking a British passport, which I think is maybe a step too far, Massimo. I know maybe you're missing Terry, but I'm not sure Leeds is the place you need to be uh, moving back to. But he's, he's recognising his his position. He says, uh, it's absurd there's a debate about whether football should or not start playing says, I, we are fortunate. I have a villa in Cagliari and one in Miami, but there are 9 million Italians living under the, the poverty line. So as ever with Massimo, you do get these moments of lucidity and uh, and I hope his, uh, I hope his liver's all right. Well, he's bemoaning the the state everyone's in and how there's not enough money for them. Does Is he remembered that he's previously been done for tax uh, evasion? This is what I mean by moments of clarity. And those are the ones we sort of wish like, yep, Yes, Massimo, you've got it. You've got it. Uh, no, actually, I just go, I'm going to go out with Terry. Ah, uh, All right, yeah, you go out with Terry. Never mind. I'm going to get a good manager this time. Uh, Steve Evans. Well, he needs to watch out because if we do get these new um, blue British passports, they are verging very much on the, uh, on the side of purple. Very unlucky. <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As I mentioned at the start of the show, key workers, 20% off their legal fees at the minute with Levi Solicitors, who are our podcast partner, and 10% off for everybody else. Levi's way of saying thanks to all the people who are making a huge difference to us at the moment during all the difficult circumstances we're, uh, we're experiencing. So if you are in one of the key worker groups, such as teachers, delivery drivers, NHS staff, contact Levi's if you need legal services, and they cover multiple areas of law, including conveyancing, wills, probate, employment law, loads more, full details on the website. Once again, 10% off 
for the square ballers and 20% off if you are a key worker. Head to levisolicitors.co.uk forward slash the square ball. Heroes and villains now then, who's made us smile? Who's made us disappointed across the last seven days? One hero, one villain. We'll start off with the Ken Bates Villainy Award and the opening nomination. Part of the rules goes for Ken Bates. Our Ken, has he, has he done anything? Uh, we know Wyoming Ken, the councilman Ken Bates in the second district, second ward in Casper. Uh, second ward. Right, yep. Yeah. Casper, Wyoming has been up to no good. We'll find out about that in a second. Anything from Monaco Ken or has it all been quiet? I assume he's locked away, isn't he? He should be anyway. And shouting into an uh, into the void or whatever. Right, what's uh, Wyoming Ken been doing? Wyoming Ken is locking us out. He seems to have done a purge on his Facebook page. I assumed he just got rid of it because when I tried to go on it, it, it says the page isn't there. But we're hearing from some of our friends on the other side of the pond that the page is still there, but he's gone through and he's kicked off those that he doesn't see as being necessarily interested in the politics of Casper, Wyoming. Well, I have searched for this page and I can't find it either and I'm not. Uh, I've not in any, any way interacted with it. So I think what he's maybe done is geographically lock it out to people only in the USA or something like that. I changed temporarily my location to Casper, Wyoming to see if it would let me back in, but it, I still can't find it on there. So I don't know. If, you're, if you've not been locked out, drop us an email, drop us a message on Twitter, let us know what he's doing because I don't trust him personally. Hiding. Who knows what he's getting up to in there? He's hiding, Michael. Absolutely typical. It's, there's something in the name. You, they just can't be honest. <laughs> Right then, who else is uh, in the running for villainy this week? Uh, we just mentioned him, or I just mentioned him, Steve Evans, who cannot let it lie. He's like a, a, a limpet stuck to the side of our hole. For some reason, apparently Gillingham have got a really good 18-year-old goalkeeper. So naturally, Steve Evans is asked about him and starts going, oh, there are kids I played at Leeds. Ronaldo Vieira, Bailey Peacock, Farrell, who's now playing for Burnley in the Premier League. No, he isn't. He's watching Burnley play in the Premier League, is what Bailey Peacock Farrell's doing. I gave kids like that their debut. I never thought about their age. I just looked at them training, looked at them playing. I thought, if you're good enough, you're old enough. It doesn't matter to me whether you're 18, 20. So that's what he's going to do with this 18-year-old goalkeeper. It doesn't matter if he's 18, 28. He's going to throw him straight in the team. Although obviously with this being Steve Evans, that is also a big fat lie because he says he'll play at our level the minute we can't reach those playoffs. If that happens, then he'll get the opportunity to make his proper debut and play football. So having claimed that he invented the concept of Ronaldo Vieira, that he invented Bailey Peacock Fowl and made him the seventh choice goalkeeper at Burnley that he is today, that he gave kids like that their debut and that it doesn't matter how old you are and they just you just get in the team if you're good enough. You get in the team if you're good enough as long as that playoff bonus uh, isn't on the line because you can't trust a fucking kid on, in goal if you're going for the playoffs, can you? Oh, you make me weep. I'd like to know what Rialdo, Ronaldo Vieira has to say about Steve Evans. If someone says to him, who have been the big influencers in your career then? Who have the, been the managers that stand out to you that have really set you on this path to being a, a top professional footballer? I'm going to guess that Steve Evans is not going to get even the slightest footnote. And now I'm now I'm properly thinking about it. When was Ronaldo Vieira's first game? Wasn't it one of Evans's last? I'm trying to remember. I remember him as being more a Gary Monk era player, to be honest. But I have vivid memories of him now playing uh, for us away at Preston, and everybody thinking, "Oh wow, look at Ronaldo Vieira! He looks absolutely brilliant." It might even have been his debut, and that was the game when, at the end of the match, Steve Evans comes over and he's clapping the the, the fans and crying because we were all more excited about Simon Grayson being Preston's manager than it being his last game. So I have a feeling that he actually put Ronaldo Vieira in for his debut in his very last match as Leeds manager. Oh, I get, you know, I trusted that kid. As soon as I saw him in training, I put that lad in the team. I made him. Tamani Diaraga, you get out. I'm putting in Ronaldo Vieira. Lies. God, I hate, I hate him. I've just looked this up. You're correct. He did make his debut in that Preston game. He didn't start. Do you know what minute he came on? <laughs> oh, tell me. It was about 80, wasn't it? The 89th minute <laughs> he came on for Stuart Dallas. <laughs> in, a, in the most meaningless game of the season, in the 89th minute. And I'll tell you what, apart from anything else, he comes up, we're winning on 78 minutes. He brings on um, <laughs> he brings on Ronaldo Vieira 90 minutes, nine, 89 minutes, 90 minutes. John Newkill scores. Well, you remember that goal, don't you? It was one of Scott Wharton's most spectacular 
just, well, probably a success from his point of view. But yeah, it was 100% pure. What an, just a, a glorious, awful moment to go out of the, the Steve Evans era on. Um, and yeah, and I remember uh, Vieira in those few moments looked absolutely brilliant. And I think much of the reaction was, well, why the fuck hasn't this useless sausage quaffing idiot <laughs> been playing him before now? It's, oh, you know, I look at him in, I look at him in training. You're good enough. Can you quaff a sausage? You'd probably <laughs> inha- inhale it and it wouldn't be sausage singular, would it? Who else was in that team? Have you got it there? Who was in midfield instead of Vieira? Dallas is one. Uh, let's look. have a look. So it was Luke Murphy, uh, Alex Mowat, and Diogo Raga. Oh, Lewis Cook played as well. So there's, there's a bit of a five-man midfield going on there. I'm not sure what order I'd put those in exactly. They seem to all be central players apart from Dallas. I guess Lewis Cook was out wide. Great days. He's young. Great days. <laughs> and an unused substitute that day? Go on. Jordan Bataka. Of course, because we couldn't have a an exciting flair player on the pitch, could we? Calvin Phillips was on the bench as well that day. Couldn't dislodge Luke Murphy. All right, let's move on. I would like to nominate Moles and the whole, in fact, that whole family, uh, Talpidae, they're called, the whole Talpidae family, digging up Pat Bamford's lawn, disrupting his training. Because if he comes back and suddenly starts missing glorious guilt edge chances and we miss goals and we don't get promoted, then we know which species is to blame, don't we? I mean, he's he's gone to all the trouble of actually buying a football and he's got nowhere to play. You can't go play on your fields, can you? God, no. Not with a slope. Surely one of daddy's JCBs could flatten him a surface somewhere. I'm still I'm trying to look up Bailey Peacock Farrell's debut and the, the circumstances surrounding that cause to see if, if he actually was giving him a chance or whether or not he just had to play him. But I can't find it. Was it Sylvester he got um, sent off? Uh, what do you remember when Belushki ended up in goal because it was Belushki's faults that he got sent off? Was Might that have been it? Uh, that could have been yeah, it, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, Leeds won QPR one anyway. It was the only game he played that season. He only played once. Steve Evans, for fuck's sake. Yep. If you look at Billy Peacock Farrell's record, played once in 2016 in that one-all draw. His next game was in the 2017-18 season in March 2018, when Steve Evans was long gone. Yeah, and that was because we basically, there was nobody else left. Felix and Lonergan were, were both broken. Yeah, I have a feeling it will have been because Sylvester was suspended. Oh, I gave him his chance. Oh, you know, the one look at him in training, I thought there's a, he's a new Dino's off. He's got to play. He's got to play. It's Steve Evans. Yes, it is. He's probably uh, living underneath Patrick Bamford's lawn as well. <laughs> What's causing all the trouble down there? Burrowing around looking for chips. <laughs> so, <laughs> so who's our villain then? Is it Ken Evans. Bates in Wyoming it's Evans. or is it Steve Evans or is it Moles? It's Evans. It's Steve Evans. <laughs> Yeah, it's Steve Evans. I'm picturing him as, as like a, in a Baron Greenback style lair as well, <laughs> living under Pat Bamford's lawn. I know, I know Baron Greenback isn't a mole, a mole, but you get the idea. I bet he knew moles. He would have known him. Right, let's move on to the um, the Andy Hughes Hero Award. The nominations, please. Well, I'm not nominating you. You'll have to nominate yourself. I'm not either, you prick. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what, what, does it, what does it say on the sheet here? Oh, who's, who's put this on the sheet? Honestly, there's, there's, you shouldn't have, there's, there's no need to put this on. In fact... I'm going to nominate you for uh, retrospectively for villain because your piece in the Yorkshire Evening Post um, this week, where you're banging on about being a kid and growing up, um, <laughs> you kept referring to something called square ball, and I don't know what square ball is. I'm familiar with a fanzine that we all collectively edit and run called the square ball, but I don't know if uh, if you need hitting around the head with the fucking style guide. That doesn't exist, uh, but reminding that it's T S B, not S B, the square ball. Well, if you if you'd ever stood and sold it, you shout square ball. It's a silent so, the. That's good enough for me. What does it say on the cover? <laughs> um, I've not I've not seen one in a while. You just don't. Is it still going? going to going into? <laughs> it's it will be back. We'll we'll do one before the end of this season. We're using a cloud document here to um, speak to each other so we know what the running order is. What does it say at the top of the cloud document? TSB podcast, the square ball podcast. Don't go into other publications and go off brand, what I'm saying. He's a prick. I mean, (laughs) what I will say is, so that crime against publication very much undoes your handiwork here. And to be honest, you should be nominated for putting yourself on this because you're blathering on about charity work, always doing it, sick of hearing about it. 
my, oh, my, 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 all my outstanding charity work. Oh, you didn't, did, why did you bring it? I didn't, you didn't necessarily need to bring this well, up. Well, you wouldn't yeah, shut it's, up it's, if you didn't. And I want to know also why it says the, we use a, a H3 font and it says using that says Michael. And then just in the normal text below somewhere like you have to scroll and scroll and scroll before you get to the name of Mike and Highwoods, who I think is actually the person who needs to be at the top of this for organizing it all. What are you actually doing? Uh, I'm, I'm going to walk up and down some stairs. Right, you can walk up and down some stairs. So something, and how many times have you done that already today? Uh, not very many. I'm trying to save myself. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, is I don't want to get I don't want to get bored of it. It's not exactly a challenge for you, is it, Michael? Well, I presume by on that. All right, I, I guess you'll be taking part then, will you two? You pricks. I don't have any stairs. No, you've got. Stairs. I'll be looking for after my children, Michael. I know you hate yours, so um, it's fine. I'll be doing that. We should probably explain properly what it is that you're doing. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to say, actually, you, you've about four or five, six, seven lines down, you've got some names of some people I actually recognise, not you. Uh, Simon Grace and Ian Hart, Danny Mills, Phil Hay, Bryn Law, Simon Ricks. All fine, upstanding uh, fundraisers. Yes. So them, plus a load of other Leeds fans, there's loads of people doing this, are going to be walking up and down some steps to do the equivalent of climbing Snowden, because that was the thing that Martin Highwood did last year for, uh, for to raise money for muscular dystrophy. But did you? I was meant to, in fact, it wasn't last year, it was two years ago, because I was meant to be moving house. Um, and therefore I didn't do it. But I'm doing this. Did you move house? Uh, I did, but not on that date. And then it all got moved. What a bullshitter. I know it's not looking good. It's not looking good, is it? <laughs> how many mountains have you climbed? Hey, none. That's how many. Not even in your own house. I'm going to order you a special Reebok step so you can do like, you can do this at home, Moscow. <laughs> Just going up and down the same step over and over again, like a mum doing aerobics. We also need to say uh, get well soon to Gary Devonport as well, who's on Talking Shut podcast, who is being laid up with a blood clot. So he was supposed to be doing this, but can't do it. So uh, get well soon, Gary. Any excuse? It's a better one than I'm no. supposed to be moving house, but I think I'm not going to bother that day. Yeah, you, Norman, are you saying that he gave himself a blood clot? <laughs> I'm just saying it's a coincidence, isn't it? But no, do get well soon. It's uh, it's quite serious, isn't it? Yeah. That? So <laughs> we shouldn't probably shouldn't probably be too. Uh, we're too flipping about it. So yeah, very, very seriously, get well soon. When is it happening? Uh, it's happening on Sunday morning. So we're going to be walking up. It's 4,610 steps uh, is what we're going to be doing. I'm not, I've not worked out how many times I have to go up and down my own steps, but it is lots. So that's going on. You can sponsor us at justgiving.com slash fundraising slash leads ups and downs because you're going ups and downs, you see. So that's what that's what that is. Uh, and then after the walk, John Richardson and Russell Howard are putting on a, a free gig on Instagram live as well, which is also for, uh, for muscular dystrophy. So get involved. Char- charities have had all of their stuff canceled more or less because it, they rely on people doing walks and daft stuff, which now no one can leave their house. So yeah, if you could give generously to that, that would be good. Michael, is yours a standard 13 step flight? Um, I think I'm going to be using some steps outside so I don't get in bother for uh, damaging the carpet. All right. Because the first thing I said, this it probably shows how... Uh, sick of me my wife is that when i said oh i'm climbing a load of steps she just said you're going to ruin the carpet she didn't ask why she didn't ask when she just said she just took it as a, as completely acceptable that i'd be climbing up and downstairs hundreds of times so yeah i think i've been i've been kicked out to the outdoor steps which i think is about 10 or 12 well if it is a standard flight of steps you need to climb 355 times to do the uh, required steps for fuck's sake <laughs> Second thoughts now. Right, we've got some other ones to rattle through. So who else is um, is worthy of mention this week? Uh, Moscow can be nominated as well for writing writing to Brighton. We saw the letter from Daniel, that young young Leeds fan offering Brighton £15 and seven pence. Tell you what, you should have seen the letters I was writing about uh, Jordan Bataka trying to get him back. Just firing off notes to anybody I can think of at the moment. Very naughty of Andrea Rattrasani as well to uh, fuel the fire by talking about putting in an increased bid as well for Mr. White. Uh, very nice, but nice as well because it reminds us that hopefully there's some football coming at the end of this and we'll get Ben White, who's lovely. To be fair to Old Rats, I think they are going to bid for him. The thing is that they're just going to get refused. So, he, you know, he wasn't lying. It's like the GFH bids for Max Gradle. <laughs> I think these ones might actually get through. I think that that's, that might be the difference. Uh, we need to give a heads up. Shout out to Dexter Blackstock and Bradley Johnson, who have been doing good stuff, uh, sorting out PPE for care homes as well. Bradley Johnson, big Leeds favourite. It's it's mostly Dexter Blackstock who has, um, after his, uh, well, not as a direct consequence of his four games on loan for Leeds, but he has retired now, despite being a relatively 
young uh, player, he's 33, but is now founder and chief executive of a medical technology firm, MediConnect, uh, which is blockchain based. And he's using their technology to get people to donate money and then acquire personal protective equipment for frontline staff. And his uh, his particular take on it is um, he's trying to target care homes because he's saying that the, the NHS have a certain amount of um, block purchasing ability, bulk purchasing ability and, and government power. But there's a lot of uh, smaller outlets around them who are further back than them in the kind of the, the pecking order for this very vital equipment. And so because of the, the blockchain technology that he's using, when you donate money to help him, apparently he has the connections to be able to acquire PPE from around the world and, and not get burned um, with the, you know, he was saying about people who are just buying empty warehouses by mistake. And you can say, right, no, I want it to go to this care home at the end of my street, or I want it to go to, to this hospital that, that is near me. Or So you can target it to where it's it's needed. And one of the people who has got involved is um, Bradley Johnson, who is kind of is driving around Derby, dishing out the equipment that they're um, getting hold of to make sure it gets there. Because he's, he's got no better to do, as he, he basically put it in, in this interview. He's saying that footballs get a, a bad rep, but I'm out here. I've got a car and I want to help. So I'm always interested when it turns out that, you know, Dexter Blackstock is now has uh, big connections in the pharmaceutical industry and is, um, yeah, operating these, this strange company, but he's doing a, a good job with it. And old, uh, old brothers helping him just as long as they're maybe not getting any of the uh, Derby teammates to share the driving, leave it to Bradley. Kudos as well to the guys from the Holbeck slash Slung Low, which it's quite difficult to, describe exactly what it is they normally do it's kind of it's a pub it's a theater it's an education center a community hub really and they do so much in the community in Beeston and Holbeck and obviously at the moment they can't do those things but they're putting together a load of community care packages for the folks in Beeston and Holbeck dropping like food prescriptions laundry stuff like that off aren't they so um, we want to give a heads up to them and say when when all this is over which is the phrase you've heard a thousand times I'm going to do x well when all this is over, pop in and have a pre-match pint because I think they've probably earned it. Yeah, they're just over the more, the whole bit more from um, Elland Roads. So they're effectively on the doorstep. I know quite a few um, Leeds fans, particularly the Scandinavians, who always have a great nose for these things, have, um, have scurried them out. But they're, uh, I don't know if you'd describe himself as the boss, but Alan Lane, who essentially runs um, Slung Low, is, uh, I interviewed him once in a, a former life and it was a, yeah, it was like spending an hour talking to a hurricane. Um, he has an unbelievable energy that he brings to everything that happens at, with Slung Low and, and at the Holbeck since they've taken that over. And absolutely no surprise that they've they've transferred um, all the energy and skills that they have into... Um, I read an interview with him this week where he said that basically it's exactly the same as putting on uh, one of their big scale theatre productions, which if you've not been to one of those... Um, they do quite often involve explosions and uh, they, they, yeah, they put on Moby Dick in Leeds Dock years ago and that had a lot of, um, a lot of pyrotechnics. And uh, I think for one production, he had to get a, like a, a firearms license because they were firing like projectile missiles and they were filming recently. They, they, they were making a film that involved like staging a, a riot and throwing Molotov cocktails at the town hall. So all the skills that they use to do that, they're using to to help people around Holbeck and Hunslet who uh, who need some help at the moment. Nice work. And yeah, the, the way to get them back is go and have a beer after after all this is done. And one final nod to somebody. Well, I mean, which one of you two is responsible for this? Because I didn't put it on the sheet, and I think we need to alert the authorities. <laughs> no, this is one. I I put it down here. I think this is one occasion when uh, we're willing to overlook kind of good manners probably as a as a basic before we get into uh, any questions of legality. But people who are filming Marcelo Bielsa in Weatherby or taking photographs of him from a distance as he goes about his walks and his strolls, um, keep doing it, please. Don't respect his privacy. <laughs> Do not leave him alone. As well, as, as long as you are leaving him alone and you're just doing this from a uh, a safe distance, one uh, COVID-19 friendly distance and also one so he doesn't get angry about people taking photos of him all the time. But it it was one, very, it was very reassuring for me to see the photos of him uh, walking past the Weatherby Whaler just to know, oh no, actually, yeah, Bielsa's still here. He's okay. 
it really did help. So if you do see them and you do get the opportunity to uh, to take a photo that you can share with the world, make, give them a wave as well. Like let's let's not just use schoolduggery and secretive. Just give them a wave and say, you know, maybe take a picture of a guy, take a picture of Marcelo. Because him tramping around Weatherby with his head down and his headphones on is probably one of those connections to normality that uh, it's a thread that I'm I'm very much clinging to. So thank you to the people who are stalking him. What I will say is I know two metres is the official government advice, but I think for Bielsa, we need to be probably trebling that at least, don't we? Don't go within 20 metres of him, in fact, is what I would say. He must remain well at all costs. Yeah, who's your uh, who's your Andy Hughes hero of the week? Well, it's not fucking Michael, is it? <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Oh, not me. Oh, okay. Uh, I must admit, I never saw Bradley Johnson would be providing crucial services that the government should be providing. But there, there you go. To be fair, it's mostly Dexter Blackstock and Bradley's just driving a car, but <laughs> fair play to him. It's a little bit like, you know, Martin Highwood has organised this fantastic fundraising initiative and you're just walking up and down some stairs. So maybe in that spirit, if we don't want to give uh, give an award to, to old Dex, should we give it to Martin for this one? Yeah, nice work then, Martin. Go on then. For making Michael <laughs> sweat. Begrudgingly. <laughs> and Phil. Phil Hayes going to be sweating too, so that's going to be worth seeing. Oh, finally, your dream fulfilled. Right, well, that wraps up this episode of the uh, of the Square Ball podcast. More of them over on the Extra Ball. Our trip back to 2009-10 continues over there this week. And our Championship Manager 0102 podcast is on the f- same feed. And we are into the final week of the season there at the moment. And we're up for an unprecedented quadruple. Question is, can we do it? You'll find out over on the Extra Ball. You'll find links to that on our mugs and t-shirts on the website as well. The squareball.net. That's it for this one. Thanks for listening. Speak to you in a bit. The Square Ball Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.